In just a moment, we are going to be turning to 2 Peter, where we will be finishing uh, the book of 2 Peter this morning. But before we do that, we have been going through the New City Catechism each week as a way to shore up our foundations, to see different doctrines and different truths that we may often overlook or just take for granted and be reminded of them afresh. So, uh, as we do that, uh, is there anyone here that would like to volunteer to recite last week's question and answer? Oh, wow. I've got three right here. So, can I have... Is it possible for all three of you to do it together? You too, Aaron? Get it all right. Thank you. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, we have some gift cards for them. This is a a well done, so grateful for how so many are taking and making use of this tool um, from our youngest uh, on up. So, wonderful example. Uh, we have a new question for this week, question number 39, with what attitude should we pray? So let's, uh, I'll recite Again, the question, and then let's all recite the answer together. With what attitude should we pray? With love, perseverance, and gratefulness, in humble submission to God's will, knowing that for the sake of Christ, he always hears our prayers. Well, I trust these have been good reminders for each of us. Um, truths like this that we don't pray to an empty sky, but we pray to a God that listens. He always hears our prayers. Not because we are worthy or have earned it, but because of what Christ has done. We have favor before God, and he always hears our prayers. Well, if you haven't already, please turn to... 2 Peter chapter 3, as I mentioned, we will be uh, covering the last two verses this morning. Before we read, years ago, evangelical leader D.A. Carson recounted hearing a Mennonite leader assess their own church movement this way. One generation of Mennonites cherished the gospel and believed that the entailment of the gospel lay in certain social and political commitments. The next generation assumed the gospel and emphasized the social and political commitments. Then the leader went on to say, the present generation identifies itself with the social and political commitments, while the gospel is variously confessed or disowned. 
It no longer lies at the heart of the belief system of many who call themselves Mennonites. The gospel was first cherished, then assumed, and then lost. Brothers and sisters, spiritual vitality is not something that can be inherited. Each generation, indeed, each individual must engage with Christ afresh. Such a process of spiritual decline, of course, is not limited to a particular branch of the church, nor is it a recent phenomenon. In fact, this tendency seemed to lay heavy on Peter's heart and mind as he penned the final words of his last known communication to the churches. Peter, well, he knew his history. He knew that the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, had repeatedly turned away from Yahweh, their faithful, redeeming God. Peter knew how quickly people rescued by God's mighty hand could turn their back on him. From passages like Judges 2, where we are told that after Joshua died, there arose a generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. What a striking statement. Just a single generation after they took possession of the promised land. Grandchildren of those who were delivered from 400 years of slavery and eyewitnesses to the plagues God brought upon Egypt who personally walked through the Red Sea on dry ground within such a short span, works and worker were both forgotten in a matter of years, which for Israel was a too often repeated pattern. But Peter didn't require a history lesson to know the dangers would be threatening the fledgling churches. Similar to what we heard from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians last week, Peter spent the majority of his second letter warning against false teachers that had already arisen within the church and led many astray within just a few decades of Christ's resurrection. He knew only too well that the purity and faithfulness of the church was something that could not just be set on autopilot. It was not something that could just be assumed. Both the church at large and individual believers are perpetually at risk of sliding away from the wonder of the gospel. So let's read Peter's final exhortation in verses 17 and 18. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. 
but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Lord, we ask that you help us not to be carried away, but to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Peter's call is to take care not to be carried away, to grow in Jesus every day. So our first point is take care not to be carried away. Peter warns us that the errors of lawless people threaten to destabilize us and carry us away. And and if we think about it, if we pause, if we get this image in our head, being carried away is a very striking picture The idea of someone taking hold of another person and transporting them somewhere they may not want to go. The person being carried is at the mercy of the one carrying them. The carrier determines the destination, not the person slung across their shoulder. I played a couple of sports Growing up and in high school, my primary sport was wrestling. Now, I'm talking about the kind of wrestling that doesn't involve top ropes or metal folding chairs. Just you and your opponent squaring off against one another in the middle of a thinly padded gym floor with no weapons, No equipment. The fundamentals of wrestling are all about position and leverage. So one of the very first basics we were taught was to keep a wide, low base, like you see in this picture. Because if you stood up straight or allowed your opponent to gain leverage while you were standing up, you risked you would become unstable and be vulnerable to getting thrown, like we see in the next picture. A lower stance was also an ideal foundation to defend yourself against your opponent shooting in to attack your legs or any attempt to take you down. But worst of all, to gain enough leverage to pick you up, like we see in the final picture. Because when you are being carried, you don't have control over how or where you will be put down. And in wrestling, the opponent's goal is not gentleness, but subduing you and pinning you to the ground. Being carried away is an alarming image in itself, but Peter turns up the reason for concern with who or what. He says, we are at risk of having carry us away. The errors, he says, of lawless people. 
Now, this is a category that should sound familiar from our message last week in 2 Thessalonians, where we heard about the ultimate man of lawlessness, the one that would come at the final time, but the one over still Christ had supremacy. It's a similar category, and Peter uses similar identifiers here, but his warning is both broader and more immediate. Because those that embody the spirit of lawlessness are active in every generation. It is the spirit of every age to seek glory apart from the Creator, salvation apart from the Savior, and a future apart from the Eternal One. Our own culture's trend is to proclaim the Bible's morals as antiquated and the church as needing to change with the times. Our current age vehemently defends its right to choose my own truth and determine my own identity, providing plenty of evidence that lawlessness still thrives and abounds 2,000 years after this warning was penned. Peter's message is just as important as the day he wrote it. As many within the church have seemingly been carried away in recent years as they embrace the culture's sensibilities. It's particularly trendy today to air disillusionment with the church as individuals deconstruct their faith. The siren song of the spirit of the age remains powerful and seductive. The messages we take in, church, the voices we listen to, the influences we allow into our homes and into our hearts, they matter. The messaging of our culture is not neutral. And we must not allow it to gain position or leverage in our thinking and in our affections. For the reality is that all of our hearts are naturally drawn to lawlessness and to self. And though the threat is mentioned as one that might be carried away, Peter's warning also reveals that we are not helpless in such a predicament. His warning is to take care that we are not carried away. Highlighting that getting carried off to undesirable destinations doesn't begin entirely against our will. We must take care not to be taken up with such errors or allow them to carry us off. We must guard our minds against error and our hearts against self-serving enticements. According to Peter, we have a choice to make. 
The final words of this letter find Peter once again not unveiling some unknown mystery, but reminding the churches of what they already know. He begins verse saying, verse 17 saying, you already know this. You know these truths. We've been talking about them. I've been with you. You know what's right and true. The truth has been revealed and we must choose whether we will stick with it or be carried off by errors. Like happened to our first ancestor in the garden. Eve knew what God said, yet she chose to listen to the serpent's voice. Because in the moment, his message and his promised destination seem more appealing. What Peter's saying here is also an echo of Paul's indictment we read in Romans chapter 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Didn't start that way. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The problem is not that the truth of God is impossible to know, but that knowing it People deliberately choose to believe lies and worship created things rather than their creator. That we insist on going our own way and fulfilling our own desires rather than submit to the sovereign Lord of all the universe. So he gives us over to be carried away. Judgment by receiving exactly what we desire. Independence and distance from him. Beloved, Peter implores, take care. So how, how, how do we take care not to be carried away like human luggage by the errors and lawlessness of this world that is our temporary home. Peter tells us, take care not to be carried away, but our second point, grow in Jesus every day. Or the way Peter phrases it, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Now, we know that we are saved by grace alone. But David Helm points out our faith must grow to keep from falling on our way home. Continued growth is the aim of the Christian life. And friends, we need to be aware that that extends beyond just not doing the bad stuff. I think there is a trap that many of us can be tempted to fall into where we think that good enough is good enough. Where we stop aiming to grow and be more like Jesus. We get lulled into thinking that we are distinct enough from the rest of the world. Surely we've hit the target and can essentially relax in this zone until he takes us home. Maybe it's the Bible school or seminary grad who thinks, well, I had a lot of classes, invested thousands of dollars and multiple years of my life to sit under great teachers. So, basically, it, I know what I need to know. At least more than most people, so why keep studying when there are no more tests? Or the ministry worker. And this one has been my personal experience. Is regularly in the Bible, but often primarily looking for the next thing to share with others. Rather than taking in the word and allowing it to transform and reform my own soul. I think it's a constant temptation for those feeling the weight and responsibility of bringing God's word week after week after week. Maybe for... Some of us, growing in Jesus simply isn't on our radar or our to-do list. We gather here week after week. When we sit in these chairs each week, are we asking God to help us to understand and to grow and to apply? Are we just here because, well, this is what we do on Sunday? And it's our routine. And we don't want think, people to think ugly things about us if we're not there. Do we come and listen and primarily think about someone else who needs to hear this? Do we show up on Sundays and Wednesdays with the mindset of a spectator or a participant? Do we come into gatherings asking God to use us to serve someone else? Are we just expecting to be served? Do we come away with a score for the band song selection, preacher's illustrations? Or do we come away with the next step that God is prodding us to take this week? Do we assume we're too young? To be expected to do anything significant 
for God. We're too old. We're too busy. We're too broken. Are we seeking to grow? Is it our aim to be more like Jesus? Do we really expect that we can look more like Jesus next week and next year? I hope so. Because it's how Peter says we're to avoid being carried away. And I think in our context, in the religious South, buckle of the Bible belt, there come to us some particular temptations that can threaten to stunt our growth. One is thinking that Christianity is primarily what we don't do. We don't drink, smoke, cuss, or chew, or go with girls that do. We are against abortion and unbiblical gender identities, and rightly so. But what does it look like to actively, positively love God and love our neighbor? Are we seeking to grow in our knowledge of God, in our relationship with Him, in our love for Jesus? How? Do we actually take steps so that we can do these things? Well, friends, we, we've got tools available to us. Tools like the Bible study that was mentioned a few minutes ago. We gather in care groups each week so that we can seek to reflect on these things and talk about them and the worries and cares of life and how we can point each other to Jesus and relate with him again today because we need to again today. There are catechisms, Bible reading plans. We have a resource center. We purposely seek to bring God's word to bear each and every Sunday because we know we need to encounter him afresh this week and the things we are going through today. Are we seeking to grow in our love for our neighbors? Are you seeking to grow in your love for your spouse, for your parents, for your kids, for your siblings, for your care group friends? your boss, your co-workers, fellow students, neighborhood neighbors, opposing political party neighbors, social media neighbors. The goal for us isn't to be good enough Christians. The goal is to be like Jesus. Peter tells us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, it sounds odd. Because we know that grace is a gift. And yet he's telling us to grow in it. 
But just as Peter highlighted that being carried away is not an altogether passive experience, neither is experiencing grace in the life of a believer. Again, to be absolutely clear, salvation is all of grace. It's not of works so that no one may boast. Peter isn't here contradicting Paul. And he's not talking about saving grace. We can't grow into being more saved. We can't be more saved than we are at the moment God mercifully brings us from death to life. By his spirit applying to our ledger the finished work of Christ. There's not more saved than that. But we do have the opportunity to benefit from and enjoy more of the transforming effects of Christ's redemptive work and the Spirit's unmerited activity on our journey toward glory. How? Well, the secret is in the other half of the sentence. We grow in grace by growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not just knowledge in general, but in Jesus. The focal point of Scripture's big story and the defining figure in all of history, the one whose miraculous birth, sinless life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection, glorious ascension are rightly heralded as good news, gospel, the only essential message for a world without God and without hope. We need more of Jesus. Dane Ortland writes, Jesus is surprising. His coming fulfilled ancient prophecies, but not expectations. He shattered expectations. Each of the four gospel accounts in the Bible uniquely gives us a Jesus who turns upside down our intuitive anticipations of who he is and how following him works. Like a bad back that needs to return repeatedly to the chiropractor for straightening out, our understanding of Jesus needs to be straightened out over and over again as our poor spiritual posture throws our perception of him out of line, domesticating him and conforming him to our image rather than transforming us into his.
When we look, it's hard to find anyone in the Gospels who wasn't surprised in some way by who Jesus was and what he came to do. I think we grow so familiar with the stories, we lose how shocking and surprising he is. He was different than who everyone thought he should be. His parents and brothers didn't understand him. John the Baptist had questions. He repeatedly confused and even frightened his closest disciples. Peter tried to rebuke him. The crowds marveled and wondered, but couldn't figure him out. Their actions ranged from seeking to make him king by force picking up stones to kill him. The religious leaders thought he was possessed. And just like those he walked amongst 2,000 years ago, we misjudge. We don't see the whole picture. Jesus is not who you imagine him to be. He's better. He's more glorious than our finite, mortal, sin-clouded minds can possibly imagine. His gospel reaches further than any human has yet to plumb the depths of. We will spend eternity being more and more amazed at his character his goodness. What does growth in grace look like? Well, knowing Jesus more and gaining more and more insight into his wondrous character opens the door to loving him more because we will be loving him more as he has revealed himself to be and not just how we imagine or want him to be. Likewise, it throws open the door to loving others more as we are surprised afresh with the grandeur of his love and his generosity, his mercy and forgiveness. All the ways that he is positively defiant of the way we think God should be. As we know him better, his character traits will grow in us. Traits like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. Growing in grace means reflecting more and more the gracious one. One of the things that I appreciate most about this church family in the current season that we are in is the wonderful examples 
we have week in, week out. Folks drawing near to Jesus, drawing near to one another. When there are a multitude of understandable reasons not to. Renew provided some great pictures. Sleeping in dorms is likely not on anyone's list of comfort and convenience. But it was a particular challenge, an inconvenience for some of our folks, like those with kids, those like like Gwen and Vivian. Dealing throughout with pain, challenges to mobility. The whole weekend they were there with us in the thick of it. What a great picture. What a great example. We have examples like Roger Easton, who this year earned a certificate from CCF in counseling. Because he has invested the last several years of his retirement so that he and Judy can serve our church family even more than they already do. Seen Dave Newell walk into the building last night as or last Sunday as cross current began. Not because he has a team there. Not because he has a defined role. Because he wants to be part of discipling the youth. Like Matt mentioned the other week, so many with young kids or kids with special needs for whom it takes significant extra effort and faith just to get out the door every Sunday morning and Wednesday night. But here you are. You are serving and pursuing community, pursuing growth. I mean, come to think of it, None of you make any sense. Not in the world's eyes. Not when you could be sleeping in or heading to the lake or the links or brunch or just avoiding people altogether. Plopping down and hitting the next thing in your Netflix queue. This gathering Worshiping and listening and serving. It's so contrary to the spirit of lawlessness and self. When I look at you, I don't see a complacent church. 
You live this out. You seek to participate, to engage, to grow in relationship with God and with one another. And in the grace that those relationships produce, this is not meant as a corrective message, but as an exhortation to keep moving forward. May we not stop cherishing. May we not assume the gospel. May it not be lost among us. Jesus, through the words here of his apostle, calls us to keep going further, deeper in our knowledge, in our relationships, and in his grace. To resist the urge to just go with the flow that our culture beckons us to. To take care to not be carried away. But to grow in Jesus day by day. the ushers could begin to pass the elements for communion the band can come up we're going to share the Lord's Supper together as the elements come by you don't need to be a member of this church to participate, you simply need to be cherishing the good news of what Jesus has done for you